Good morning, everyone. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you. Welcome back, Rebecca. All right, so uh, yesterday, busy day here at uh, the facility um, at 8 o'clock. This is the way that we bless um, the deacons and deaconesses of our church. All their service, all their hard work, we make them every other month on a Saturday morning get up at 8 o'clock for a meeting, okay? But so many wonderful people who are leading forward ministries at our church. So encouraging. Um, but then after that, food pantry happened, and it was so cool to get to be here and see a, a great team of people um, working together, joyfully serving uh, people from our neighborhood. There were so many from our neighborhood receiving um, uh, food. But I, I want you to know that the dignity of intentional gospel relationships is not just that one person has everything and gives it to the other person but it's that the other person also has something to give. And so in relating to people who are coming in to Food Pantry, it's not just a matter of us giving them something that they need, but it's also us receiving something from them that we need. And that is a relationship where we can see the image of God in one another and communicate and acknowledge what Christ has done and hopefully see people be drawn to Christ, us included, right? All right, so Antioch kids, you may be dismissed to go to your classes at this time. Teachers, we say to you in this important gospel mission, you are sent. Young disciples who remain in the room, that's uh, first grade and up. There are uh, sermon guides right over here on the side table to help you if you need to, uh, to be able to grab those and follow along this morning. All right. Well, today we're going to continue in our sermon series in Genesis 37 to 50 that we've titled, Worst Thing, Best Thing. And so this morning I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 43. We're going to go from verse 1 of chapter 43 all the way to verse 17 of chapter 44. Young disciples, there's the first answer you need for your sermon guide. Today's passage is Genesis 43, 1 through 44. 17. Now you can find that on page 36 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. The title of today's sermon is Broken People, Bless People. And that will also serve as the main idea this morning. Young disciples, you'll need those for your sermon guides as well. In today's sermon, we see Joseph's brothers taking two trips down to Egypt, which are pictures of their journey down into true repentance into being broken now the first trip is going to show us that broken people are satisfied with their status before others and then their second trip into egypt will show us that broken people are sacrificial with their service toward others now since today's passage is so long rather than standing to read it all at once i'm going to be reading it verse by verse as we go but let us still posture our hearts towards God's word in such a way that we can say in regard to it, the Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, meet the brown-headed cowbird. All right. I'll teach you some things this morning. If you pay close attention, you'll probably see a brown-headed cowbird in your very own backyard. But a lot of people don't like to see the brown-headed cowbird. And that's because they are America's most common brood parasite. That sounds gross, right? 
But it doesn't refer to like worms. It's parasites because instead of building their own nests, they lay and then abandon their eggs in other birds' nests. What's up with that, brown-headed cowbird? And not only that, but their young usually develop much faster than others. And so they devour all the food that the parents bring and they grow quickly, which then starves and sometimes smothers some or all of the other baby birds. Not to mention that they sometimes straight up toss their stepbrothers and sisters out of the nest altogether. Listen. Every time you see a cowbird, you are seeing a bird that harms others by one, taking what it wants from them, and two, dumping on them what it no longer wants. Thus, in the bird watching world, cowbirds are a nuisance. Now, ironically, in the Bible reading world, we have come across another nuisance to the flourishing of others. They are the brothers of Joseph. So think about this and make the cowbird connection here. These brothers of Joseph were part of a family that had been chosen by God uniquely to bless all the families of the earth. And yet in their jealousy over their exalted brother Joseph and their cover-up of what they do to him, they do harm, one, by taking what they wanted from Joseph, and two, by dumping on him what they no longer wanted. You see, Joseph had ascended. He had gone up, been exalted in the eyes of his father, and they wanted to take that away. Meanwhile, they had descended, gone down, been shamed in the eyes of their father, and they wanted to dump that on Joseph. And then they straight up tossed their brother out of the nest altogether, right? Sold him into slavery. And in terms of God's plans to bless people through these brothers, they effectively had become anti-gospel, a nuisance to the flourishing of others. Now, if God had abandoned them like they had abandoned Joseph, then they would have remained just as spiritually enslaved as Joseph was physically enslaved. But because God is true to his promises, he loved them enough to discipline them. And we saw this beginning last week as Joseph broke them open, so to speak, through alternating acts of truth and grace, sun and frost, as we called it. And that process continues over two chapters Today and then you really begin to see the results. So we read this in verse 1 of chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned, warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, 
Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Even though Jacob had not participated in the sin of selling Joseph, his heart had been hardened by his unresolved wounds. And if you remember all the way back to chapter 37, when he was told that Joseph was dead, we read that all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And so we see in this the depth of his pain. Right? But, but we also see our human tendency to find comfort in our wounds. We do that, don't we? We can find comfort in our wounds. We can hide behind them like a fort that keeps others out, including God. But, and we said this last week, whatever we won't deal with, others will have to and often especially those we love most. So Jacob here is not only letting his pain drag him down into spiritual starvation, but his refusal to release Benjamin is going to drag his entire family into physical starvation. Yet, look at what begins to break Jacob open. Judah. The guy who had been the ringleader in putting the shame of slavery on Joseph. The guy who didn't bat an eye at putting the shame of execution on Tamar. He steps up and says, Send Benjamin with me. And if I do not bring him back, put the shame on me. Mm. It is sacrificial love, church. It is sacrificial love that finally starts to crack the wounded heart. And we see this in Jacob. Look at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sack. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So one thing to notice here is that Jacob kind of resorts to his old tactics. If you remember last summer's Um, sermon series in Jacob's section of Genesis chapter 32 Jacob sends all kinds of gifts to his brother Esau in hopes of finding mercy with him and yet 
This time, Jacob appeals to the mercy of God Almighty, he says. And that is the name that's most closely connected with God making his promise to Abram way back. And so Jacob takes the risk of surrendering himself here, right? He says, if I am bereaved, then I am bereaved. This is huge. This is how wounds start to heal. We come out of the fort and we acknowledge the pain and we take the risk of letting God and his people speak into that pain and minister to that pain. And so we see this happening with Jacob. And look at what it all depends on. All this pivots on something. The sacrifice of a beloved son. Jacob is surrendering Benjamin. Remember the last time a beloved son was carried off to Egypt with things like gum, balm, and myrrh? By tracking back with that? It's chapter 37. When Joseph was carried off to Egypt, enslaved with the Midianite traders. God has placed this family back into the same scenario so that their consciences can reawaken, so that their hearts can respond differently this time, and so that their past can be redeemed. God's doing something. And as they embark on their first trip to Egypt in today's story, Here's the practical truth that I want to bring out that I think we clearly see in this passage. It's that broken people are satisfied with their status before others. So let's let this roller coaster begin. Look at verse 15 with me. So the men took this present and they took the double, the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, He said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So what you're going to see throughout today's story is the sputtering consciences of these brothers reminding them of the guilt that they've been hiding for 16 years. Over and over, Joseph shows mercy and kindness to them, but they can't receive it without being afraid of it. It makes them straight up irrational. I mean, they think Joseph, the ruler in all of Egypt, the functional, most powerful person on all the planet, wants to steal their donkeys, okay? Think of it like this. A person who commits a serious crime and runs away from the scene goes to their apartment and hides. Every time somebody comes to the door and knocks for days, weeks, maybe even months and years, what do they do? If they don't go and jump and hide behind their sofa, they will at least jump in their hearts. Why? Because they know they're guilty and they're afraid that somebody is coming to find them out. And so this is what is at place in the hearts of these brothers. 
And isn't this basically what it was like when Adam and Eve became guilty of sin? God came to visit them in the garden, and what happened? First thing, they were afraid, and they hid. So thank God that he continues to stand at the door and knock. Amen? Mm. So the story continues in verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And so you see, kindness upon kindness. Not only does Joseph prepare a feast for them, think of it like Abraham when he was entertaining angels. They came to visit him and he just immediately made a feast. This is kind of what Joseph is laying out for them. Not only that, but look at the steward. He speaks good news of peace. He refreshes them and their donkeys from the long journey. And he sets the captive Simeon free. And then who does he give credit with the act of having put money or treasure into their sacks? He says, your God and the God of your father did that. But wait, like, didn't Joseph do that? So what's the steward getting at here? Here's what I think he's getting at. He is saying essentially, God's doing something. God's doing something here. The grace of being doubly blessed with grain and money, combined with the truth of being framed as thieves ten times over, you combine the sun and frost of those things, and what you get is God breaking them open, leading them to repentance. In fact, we read of this very thing in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul asks the question, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What the brothers will come to see is that God had been patiently waiting for them over the past 16 years. They may have taken his lack of confrontation with them As a sign that time heals all wounds, right? Nothing bad has really happened in my life since that thing went down. Therefore, I'm good. We're good. I've moved on. God's moved on. But in reality, that 16 years was meant to lead them home to God. It was Him waiting patiently. And yet, like many of us, still they needed help, didn't they? Even after all these kindnesses and the assurance of do not be afraid, they got ready for lunch, not with excitement, 
Dude, he invited us over for lunch. He's throwing a feast up in his palace. What is going on? No, no, it's not like that. They get ready for lunch, frantically preparing their peace offering to Joseph. How many of us today, when we come before God, either in worship or maybe in a private time of worship, reading scripture, praying to him in your home, no one else sees, and the way that you come is not with excitement and peace, but you're frantic to make peace, to offer something so that he will be pleased and receive you. We can apply this to us today, church. And so let's see what happens. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Young disciples, you need this for your sermon guide. Benjamin is the brother that Joseph was most excited to see. Okay? Verse 30 continues, Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. So here's where we shift for just a moment in the story to see through Joseph's eyes. See, he finally sees the whole line of his brothers, including Benjamin, the brother with whom he probably had some sort of special relationship because they were both the sons of Rachel. So look at the results of this deep inner transformation that's taken place in Joseph. He stands with total power over his brothers, him in the right, them in the wrong. And what comes out of his mouth? Is it deadly legislation? No, it's grace. He says, God be gracious to you. And what has been poured freely onto me, may it be poured onto you. That's what he's saying. And the source from which it flows is this heart of compassion, such that he flees to his deepest inner chamber to weep, not just from his affliction, but from affection. This is the phrase that we read here, his compassion grew warm. And that is similar to a couple other places in the Old Testament. One, the story that you're probably familiar with, where two women fighting over the same baby come before King Solomon. And King Solomon rules over them by saying, okay, we'll just cut the baby in half. We'll give one half to you and one half to you. What happens? Well, the one who is the true mother, who truly loves that child and not just having a child, she does what? We read that her heart yearned for her son, and she said, give her the living child. I'd rather save its life than have it for my own. So there's one example. Another example of this phrase is in Jeremiah 31, where God, speaking of his people who have been disciplined into foreign exile, says of them, they are my darling child, my heart 
yearns for him. And so what this picture of Joseph is meant to communicate to the original readers of Genesis and to us today is God's compassionate heart toward his wayward children. There's a book on the missionary John G. Patton who was uh, sent to serve among cannibalistic tribes in Papua New Guinea. And John Patton, at the beginning of his book, tells a story that's unforgettable of how before he really was captured by God, the way that he came to that space was by observing his father who would go daily into his little closet where he would pray. So let me read to you at length from this book. Thither daily, and oftentimes a day, generally after each meal, we saw our father retire and shut the door. And we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct, for the thing was too sacred to be talked about, that prayers were being poured out there for us, as of old, by the high priest, within the veil in the most holy place. We occasionally heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice, pleading as if for life. And we learned to slip out and in past that door on tiptoe, not to disturb the holy colloquy. The outside world might not know, but we knew. Whence came that happy light as of a newborn smile that always was dawning on my father's face. It was a reflection from the divine presence in the consciousness in which he lived. Never in temple or cathedral, on mountain or in glen, can I hope to feel that the Lord God is more near, more visibly walking and talking with men than under that humble cottage roof of thatch and oaken wattles. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt and with victorious appeal, he walked with God. Why may not I? You see, like John Patton, walking past the door of his father's closet, Genesis here gives us the clearest glimpse into the deepest inner chamber of God's heart, where he weeps with affection over his wayward children. Church, behold your father. This is not a sermon for Father's Day. But church, behold your father. And notice this as well. At the trip's beginning, Jacob, if you remember, had invoked God for mercy. And yet here, Joseph invoked God for grace. Do you know what the difference is between mercy and grace? It's a big difference. Anybody in here a fan of Monopoly? You old school when it comes to your games? All right, all right, I see a few. 
The rest of you probably are familiar enough with it. You played it for an hour and decided you step out while it continued on through the rest of the night. But in the game of Monopoly, there's this thing where you end up in jail. And you can't get out of jail unless you have what? Get out of jail free card, right? So mercy is being given a get out of jail free card. You deserve to stay in there the rest of the game, but you're given a mercy so you can get out. But grace, grace would be like being given the the get out of jail free card and when you apply it and step out of the jail, all the other players say, and you win the game. Here's all the money, all the property, all the rest of the hours that we're going to fight over each other to win this game. You get it all, even though you don't deserve it. That's grace. It goes above and beyond just getting out of trouble. It gives you more. And so Jacob and his sons are relating to God like he's just a God of mercy. But their God is a God of grace. Mercy will leave you better. But grace will leave you broken. And that's what God's after. So here's where we expect Joseph to come out and say, Guys, it's me, group hug. Come on, bring it in. But there's still more to be tested. Verse 31. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright. And the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So here's the intended impact of these details. Having five times as much portions of food blatantly given to the little guy at the end of the table... Benjamin, the most beloved of their father, that would have brought up something real deep, right? A familiar old feeling. It's that same original scenario. A young brother being lavishly, blatantly favored over them. So what would come up in the unbroken heart in that scenario? Yes, anger, hatred, jealousy. Saying something like this in their hearts or with their mouths. Look at him being exalted while we are being shamed. Oh, it's fine now. But on the way home, mm, we're going to toss him out the nest. And we'll take what we want from him. But that's not what happens, is it? The chapter ends simply this way. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, in the Hebrew, this literally means they became intoxicated. And so the idea here is that this was an atmosphere like a wedding. 
Y'all know what a biblical wedding atmosphere was like? It was all about the wine. And when the wine ran out, the wedding was over. Like people were having fun. In Bible times, it was a full-on celebration. And so this is what should have been when Joseph first shared his dream 16 years ago. These brothers, if they could rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, they could have said, wow, bro, thanks for sharing your dream. That's awesome. God's doing something and we get to be part of it. But because of sin, that didn't happen. What's different now, though? A deep inner transformation has been happening. The brothers are breaking. You see, their status before others isn't controlling them anymore. Why? Because God satisfies. They might then say in their hearts and with their mouths, Look at the grace God is pouring on us who don't deserve it at all. Who cares about the seating order or my serving size? God is my portion. I have more than enough. Now, what about this mattered so much that God would let it age over the course of 16 years instead of bailing out on it? It's because... If God's people are not broken of their pride, then two things. One, they miss out on God blessing the nations through them. And two, when God's so good that he blesses the nations anyways, their jealous hearts will become a nuisance to the gospel. But through repentance, these brothers are becoming the opposite of a nuisance. Anybody know what the opposite of a nuisance is, according to Webster's Dictionary? A blessing. These brothers are redeemed to be the vessels for flourishing that God created them to be. And that's what happens when broken people are satisfied with their status before others. All right. There's the result of the first trip down to Egypt. Now let's take a look at the result of the second trip. Looks like this. The broken people are sacrificial with their service toward others. We read at the beginning of chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food and as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. See, they got away with their donkeys. (laughs) They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? is, Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Oh, man. Looks like Joseph is getting unstable again. He blesses the brothers by provisioning them and then curses them by framing them for theft and puts this weird cup that he practices divination with, so to speak. 
What's going on, man? But hopefully by now you have learned to see that there is purpose behind these things. Remember, Joseph and the God who leads him doesn't just want revenge and he doesn't just want forgiveness. He wants what? I remember change. And so by putting the silver cup in Benjamin's sack, he's putting the brothers back into that same old scenario. Will they put onto Benjamin what they don't want? Will they sacrifice him so that they can go free? Will they grieve their father unto death? And will they repay evil for good? Like here's their chance for true repentance. Which, by the way, true repentance isn't just words like, I'm sorry. Okay? I'm sorry is often what we say, not as an act of repentance, but appeasement. You with me? Let me give you an example. We have an altercation with someone, possibly a spouse, friend, whoever. And we say, whether in our hearts or with our mouths, I see that you're upset with me, and this feels really awkward, okay? So, whether or not I actually believe that I'm in the wrong, I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, and then we can move on, right? That's how we use I'm sorry sometimes. But true repentance flows from a heart that is broken over its sinning against or wounding of others, recognizing that the sinning and wounding is ultimately against God. That's the only way true repentance can be completed in its change of behavior. You can't change the behavior and then pack the heart. The heart has to be broken and changed for the behavior to actually be pure and righteous. Let me give an example from my own marriage. Many times in my marriage over the past almost 11 years, I have sinned against my wife in ways that are very cyclical. And she loves me enough to call me out on those things. And I responded with what? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I see what you're saying. I'm so sorry. And then what happens? <laughs> Go and do the same thing the next day, right? And it's over and over and over. And what through a counselor we came to realize, especially I came to realize, is saying I'm sorry is not true repentance. Repentance sometimes can't happen in a moment. Sometimes you have to say, I hear what you're saying, and I need some time to go spend with the Lord in order for Him to convict me deeply in the way that I need to be convicted of this, realizing that my sin is ultimately against Him, and He is grieved by it, and I ought to be too. And once He breaks my heart, I will return to you and ask for your forgiveness if you're willing to forgive me. That's true repentance because it depends on God to change what we can't change with him, okay? That's what it looks like in my marriage and will continue to look like as God changes me. And I think that's the invitation for all of us today. It's certainly the invitation for these brothers. And so let's see what happens in verse 6. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Listen, whichever of your servants is found with it, 
shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, okay, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. See here that the brothers are so confident in their innocence. Perhaps even so impressed with their behavioral change that they make this unthinkable vow. Death penalty for the thief and slavery for all the rest. And so here is one of the greatest barriers to true repentance. It's the assumption that present behavior can fully resolve past sins and wounds. We say to ourselves, the past has been dealt with. I'm a new creation. I don't have to go back to that. And you are a new creation. But what do you do with the God who loves you enough to always reveal the next layer of igneous rock in your heart so that he can redeem it? What do you do with that? He's bringing it up. He wants to deal with it. You say, no, no, I'm new creation. He's like, yeah, I know. I've forgiven that. But its consequences have carried on. The change hasn't been completed. I want to go there. And so here's what the brothers do. They tear their clothes. They load their donkeys. They return to the city. In other words, they own it. They don't sacrifice Benjamin to death and then take a bloody garment home to deceive their father. They don't rain hatred on their brother or cry false accusation to the steward. They tore their clothes as a sign of being torn in their hearts. And their trip back down to the city is a picture of another trip down into repentance. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. He was waiting for him, wasn't he? They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servant. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Here's the amazing thing about these verses. Not only do the brothers own the guilt together, but look at who they give credit for finding them out. Not Joseph, but God. And that was part of the test. Joseph had put the cup and the thing about divination in there to conceal not just his involvement, but God's involvement to a certain extent. This was the perfect opportunity for the brothers to say, man, this was just bad luck or bad magic. But instead, they say, God found us out. God's doing something here. 
In fact, the verb to find out is used eight times in this chapter. So they're owning it. And they're breaking over it. And now comes the final test. Joseph says, hey, actually guys, no problem. Slavery for Benjamin, but the rest of you can go free. What will they do? Look at the words of verse 18. Then Judah went up to Joseph and said, Pause there. There's more here than we'll have time to unpack. I have to wait until next Sunday for the rest of that. But what I want you to see is that Judah, on behalf of the brothers, sacrificially took action for the sake of Benjamin and their father. Young disciples, this is how Judah's character has changed. You need this for your sermon guide. Judah now loves others rather than just himself. So I want you to notice the language of these words here. Judah went up. Remember, they've been going down, down, down this whole story. Judah went up. Picture Judah's great-grandfather Abraham coming up the mountain to sacrifice his son. Except Judah's going further than that here. He's offering up himself. If repentance is true, then to descend down into it always then means coming up out of it with evidence of a little bit of change deep down. You see, when they no longer needed to put their sins on another person because those sins had been dealt with by grace, it freed them to serve others sacrificially. To lay their lives down instead of demanding others to lay their lives down. Now what about this mattered so much that God would let it age over the course of 16 years instead of just bailing out on the whole process? Because if God's people, chosen by his gracious favor, only repay evil for good, then the nations will never be blessed through them. The love of God by its very nature is self-sacrificing. To know it is to flourish. And to extend it is to imitate it. And this is the change that we've all been waiting for in this story. This is why broken people are sacrificial in their service to others. Well, I hope that after today's sermon, every one of you will be able to go out into your backyard and immediately identify a brown-headed cowbird. It's a good goal for a sermon, isn't it? Yep, you're welcome. But not simply for the sake of amateur bird watching. Let me explain. Every time that this nuisance bird dumps one of its eggs into another bird's nest, That mama bird doesn't just extend mercy. She doesn't just say, okay, you can stay, but get over in that corner. When that little bully out eats, smothers, and even tosses some of its stepbrothers and sisters out of the nest, that mama bird will still 
raise it as her very own, even if it's the only one left. And that's grace. You see, every time you see a brown-headed cowbird, you are seeing something that lives and flourishes only by grace. And you need to see that. Why do you need to see that? Why does that matter to you? Because you were the brown-headed cowbird. You were the unbroken brothers. Your story was a story of harming others by taking what you want from them and by dumping on them what you no longer want. By our very fallen nature, watch a precious little child as it steals something out of the hands of its little friend and dumps on them the toy that it no longer wants. And we just grow into that more and more as we get older, right? And so what I'm saying is that your pedigree was one of anti-gospel nuisance to the flourishing of others and hiding behind wounds like a fort. Let me give you a modern example. Think about all the commentary that we all participate in, whether it's public or whether it's just in our hearts or our homes. All the commentary taking place in regard to the culture and to the church sounds something like this. Those people, they are the issue. They are the problem. They are the nuisance. Here's how we can flourish. Take their influence away and give them what they deserve. And among Christians, I even hear this in trigger happiness toward church discipline and Old Testament-based legislation. And in some instances, you may even be correct in your critique. The Bible indeed gives its own critique, right? But here's the problem. The moment that you apply God's word to someone else and say, Aha! Romans chapter 2 verse 1 flames off the page like the ancient elvish script on Frodo's ring. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So there's your first trip down to Egypt and into repentance today. You, by your very sin nature, have gone down, been shamed in the eyes of your heavenly Father. And so when you condemn your brother made in the likeness of God, are you not tossing him out of the nest in order to go up and exalt yourself over him? The only way that you can respond properly to the reality that someone else is a nuisance to gospel flourishing is by first acknowledging that you have been too and are indeed the foremost. Otherwise, as Romans 2 continues, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's your second trip down to Egypt and into repentance today. 
Y'all want to know who the biggest nuisance to gospel flourishing is in this church? I'll call him out by name. Bradley Bell. That's who it is. I own it. Every time that I get into that space where I'm throwing down on somebody else and saying, they're the problem, the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and says, oh, really? Huh. Interesting. You ought to know and know it well. Takes one to know one, doesn't it? I own it. God's found me out. And for any of you who also will own it, here's God's invitation to you. Don't run and hide in guilty fear or unresolved pain. Come and be broken by sacrificial love. You see, there is an elder brother who has gone before you down into Egypt and back up out of Egypt. And although he was exalted in the eyes of his father, he came down in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came with kindness upon kindness And the constant assurance to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And yet we respond so frantic to make our own peace offerings to God that we can't even be with him as a non-anxious presence. He speaks good news of peace. He refreshes us. He sets the captives free. He prepares a spiritual feast for all. And yet... How do we, his brothers and sisters, humanly speaking, respond to all this gracious favor? We repay good for evil. We take from him what we want, the blessing of God. And we put on him what we don't want, the guilt of man. We crucify him. And there, on the cross... He gives us the clearest glimpse into the deepest inner chamber of God's heart where he weeps with affection over his wayward children. When you look upon Jesus on the cross, behold the heart of your Father. And here is how all sins and wounds can heal. Everything depends On this surrendering of a beloved son. This self-sacrificing love of God. To see that will help you invoke God for mercy. Lord, he took my place. I deserved it. He didn't, but he took it. I'm sorry. Have mercy on me. That's where it will lead you. And he will have mercy on you. But if you also see that he raised Jesus from the dead and then enthroned him as the ruler over all things so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you, Ephesians 2, that will help you invoke God for grace. You see, mercy will leave you better. But grace will leave you broken. And that's what God's after. And this is the only way that your conscience can reawaken. Your heart can respond 
differently. Your past can be redeemed and your behavior truly changed. This ongoing lifetime process of true repentance is what can allow you to be satisfied with your status before others and sacrificial in your service toward others. This is how you can become the vessel for flourishing that God made you to be. This is how you can participate in God's blessing of the nations. My friends, broken people bless people. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, isn't it ironic what he did? He broke it. He didn't just break it, he identified with it. Not just symbolically, but as his body that was to be broken, open for us. Likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this marks the new covenant in the stuff that will pour out of my broken body. The only thing that can wash your heart clean and change it forever, my blood. And so as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you not only remember what he did, but you announce that he's coming again. Our tradition here at Antioch is to come to this table every Sunday. I know that's strange for some folks who grew up in churches who do it maybe once a quarter. And it could easily get old if you just do it every week and you do it mindlessly. But we believe as a church that we need to come to this table every week and be reminded, man. I walk out these doors and by lunch I've forgotten what I preached, okay? We need these reminders over and over. So our tradition is to come forward, to break off a piece of bread, to dip it into the juice and take it. If you're a baptized believer, that's the invitation for you, whether or not you're a member of this church. If you're not a baptized believer, this is not for you. What we'd invite you to take instead is the real thing, Jesus himself, who's been broken and poured out for you. There'll be pastors in the back, men, women, also to pray with anyone who has any need. Would you come back and let us? minister to you if your heart has been broken by what the Spirit has spoken to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you all together as these brothers bowed before not just Joseph, but ultimately before you, recognizing that their sin had not just been against Joseph, but had been against you. Thank you so much for not bailing out on us, but continuing to stand at the door and knock, even when we hide. Lord, you're such a tender father. You are on display today in the person of Jesus Christ. And so thank you for sending him to die in our place, to rise again, so that you might extend to us not just a get-out-of-jail-free card of mercy, but you might extend to us the grace of winning the whole game freely and forever. Lord, let your people be encouraged to draw near to your throne and your deep heart of affection for them today. And for those in this room who do not know you and know the tenderness of your heart and maybe have been hiding from you in fear, 
May you melt their heart down today by the reality that they are loved and they are welcome and that Jesus has proven it. Have your way, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.